What we've got here is failure to communicate. And it get hot. I got a lot of. I got hairy legs that turn that 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 that, that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down, so it was straight. And then watch the hair come back up again. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. With your host, Mike Paul. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. So, you know, as I mentioned, I recently started a Twitter for the for the podcast, which, by the way, is uh, T-O underscore Pauls is the, the handle. Or you can look up Pauls to the Wall podcast. But, man, like, I am so fascinated by uh, the philosophy of these socialists um i've never really kind of engaged with them till now other than just people from high school and stuff that i know my personal life but man i've just been uh you know i take the app off my phone after like 24 hours i was like this is not healthy but uh you know just like once or twice a day i'll check back and see what kind of shit i've stirred up if i post something towards a socialist and man they are just i'm kind of i'm fascinated with their worldview and this this uh utopia they have planned yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, like you said, I, I know people who are actual socialists and a lot of them are, they're not the typical kind of like social justice warrior socialists, like the kind of AOC fans. Like I, I know real socialists, like they're, they're, and in a way they're very similar to political dissidents on our end, like libertarians and and caps and that kind of thing, because they at least reject the status quo and they think that there are serious structural problems that need to be reformed. And they're not just kind of a a typical Republican or Democrat that talk about, you know, social security needs to be reformed and we need to raise corporate taxes or lower them by 3%. You know, they see actual problems uh, and diagnose a lot of the same problems that libertarians do when it comes to the economic elite and all these things and the warfare state, their allies on that issue, their allies on a couple little issues that's not a little issue, but you know what I mean? And, right. and it's, uh, those people are, and they're also less likely to fly off the handle and call you a fascist or a racist or anything like that. And I don't mind talking to those people. Like you just did that episode with Ben Burgess and Ben to me seems like a, a very reasonable guy. He doesn't get emotional and angry. It's like, I disagree with his politics and you know, most of his philosophy, but at least he's willing to have, uh, you know, civil discourse, which most people these days are not. So just for that, I have respect for people, you know? Right. And I said that uh, opening that episode that uh, Ben's one of the few people I've seen that he willingly engages with people of uh, opposing viewpoints, which is rare for anyone um, of, of any ideology. A lot of people love staying in their echo chambers um, and not trying to back up their stances. So, yeah, I respect that, even though I philosophically agree with or disagree with almost every single word that comes out of his mouth on domestic policy. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what the uh, what the plan is. I, I think you said he was going to listen to the episode and response. So that'll be cool. Well, he asked for the link. So, yeah, I, I told him, uh, you know, because I initially responded to his article and I said, this is outrageous. Like, what the hell gives you the right to tell me I can't hand my wealth to my kids. Um, and he goes, well, if you read the article, you'll see that uh, these answers are all, or these questions are all answered inside of it. And I said, no, I, I read it, but whether I have $10 to my name or 10 billion, not one penny is your right to manage. 
Um, yeah. And, and also somebody who is, uh, I would say we talk about them being red pilled in certain aspects. One of the things that they're pretty good on is if you describe the, the federal government, as you see it, as the mafia masquerading as a human rights organization, as Dave Smith likes to say, uh, you go, okay, so what you want to give them another, you know, $50 billion a year or whatever it's going to equate to. And that's the other thing where, you know, they talk about like, let's just look at the federal budget, um, not including 2020 or what fiscal fiscal year 2020, which is going to have the craziest deficits in human history. I mean, they're, I think the, the final tally was they took in like $3.2 trillion in revenue and they spent like seven. So they <laughs> borrowed and printed more money than they received in tax revenue. But that's, that's obviously uh, not typical. I mean, typical is not too far off. Exactly. Usually a good year is they, they borrow about a trillion dollars a year. So it's like three and a half trillion and you know, they spend four and a half trillion. So you have a trillion dollar a year deficit. And up till this year, it was what 22 trillion. Now it's like 28, but so it's like, okay, so what are their big ideas? They want to tax the churches and they want to tax wealth. They want a wealth tax. And, and when you look at the, tax. an inheritance tax, and it, mm -hmm. it's when you look at the kind of numbers that they're actually going to be pulling in, they don't make a dent in the deficit. Like it's not even that much money. And the thing is they, one thing that they never like to talk about is the incentive structure mm -hmm. that you create when you do that. It's like, okay, so you raise taxes on corporate profits. Okay. So what are they going to do now? It's like, well, they're just going to reinvest more of their profits or they're going to move it overseas where they don't have to pay taxes on their sales. Like they're going to adapt and you're not going to get the money out of them that you think that you're going to. And that's why when you look at all of these, you know, actual socialist regimes in history, like the Soviet union, they had to, you know, keep people in by force because they viewed the 1%, the, the bourgeoisie as this kind of cattle that they can just hold down and milk. And people are going to resist that. Like if you want to actually implement and, you know, take control of all of the economic power, you need physical force and power to back that up. And that's something that they don't want to contend with because they see the state as a potential, you know, tyranny. And they think that if they have it in their hands, it's not going to happen that way. But if you take it to its logical conclusion, it must be taken that way. And it, that starts with the wealth tax. It starts with, you know, I mean, really it's, I mean, it starts with the income tax. That's the the big one. And then once that precedent's been set and you're not getting a ton, you want more revenue from those income taxes because now people aren't reporting it on their income. You know, they like to talk about like the 1950s and Tom Woods has talked about this before, but everybody talks about the, I think it was 90% uh, marginal income tax rate under Eisenhower in the fifties and how, you know, look how good the economy was and all this stuff. And what they don't account for, uh, I don't have the figures in front of me, but the percentage of revenue that resulted from that marginal tax rate was negligible because that's when they talked, or Tom Woods talked about this. That was when you started seeing companies that had these lavish, crazy offices and business trips because you don't have to report that as somebody's income. So if somebody gets hired as a VP or something at a company or some sort of executive, maybe like, hey, let's not let's not make your salary this because then you're going to, you know, have to pay through the nose, but we'll give you a company car. We'll give you a, a, you know, very plush office and trips and all these things. So people will game the system no matter what you do. They're not stupid. You know, people right. don't, the, the 1%, they don't become these super ambitious people just so they can hand over their, their money to some thugs in government suits. Right. And that's exactly what I got to in the article is that, 
you know, you and I are capable of thinking like a socialist and understanding what they what their worldview is. And then we can poke holes in it and tell people why it's flawed and why it's we have hundreds of uh, examples of data of it failing in just horrendous ways with pure carnage in its wake. Um, but they are incapable of thinking like a capitalist. They they don't realize that you're just incentivizing me to think outside the box to play a gotcha game with this one. Like the one thing I said during, during the uh, when I broke down Ben's article. Okay, so he's talking about you can inherit um, like he brought up Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino in that movie. So he didn't want to take it away from that kid that he should. That's his right to give him the car. But um, assets should have a strict upper limit. So that's just an word for arbitrary. Um, so once again, that's just vague. What, what number is too much for one guy to inherit? So, um, you know, if uh, you have a 76 LTD that your grandma had new, that's worth six grand, even if it's mint, that's OK to inherit. But if your grandpa had better taste and bought a 70 Boston 429 Mustang, and it's worth 300 grand. Sorry, that was got to go to the state. I don't care if you guys restored it together. I don't care if you grew up with that car. That's the states now. Um and the way around that the socialists don't think is, what if I just put it in my grandson's name while I'm still alive? What if I sell it to him at a sweetheart deal for 10 grand while it's still alive? It's legally his property now. You can't do shit when I die. Like, you're not you're not solving anything. You're just incentivizing people to just get rid of their assets and will it away before they die. I think that's something that you see or you hear about a lot when it comes to uh, – I've discovered this more recently – knowing more people that have to put their parents in an old age home, like a, a nursing home or whatever, or for them to get Medicare, it's like they come after a certain percentage of your net worth. Isn't that how it works? Like you're, they'll come after your bank account, right? So if you're going to be taking in, or if you're going to be, you, you're racking up bills uh, via Medicare, they'll come in, like they'll take like equity in your house or whatever. Or they basically take it out of their will or out of mm-hmm. the person's will. I think that's how it works. Somebody could correct me because I've only heard this talked about, but I know that in a lot of cases, if somebody's going to go to an old age home, that basically the IRS moves in and they they take what they can from you. And every one of these times this has happened, they like even this is left wing people, right wing people, apolitical. It doesn't matter. They all talk about like, okay, how can we get rid of this stuff in your name? Like, let's okay, give us that car. You know, like we're going to move all this stuff around so we don't get raided by the IRS. And it's. It's just, it's a, it's a never ending cat and mouse game when you start playing that game with people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I said is, well, how are you going to enforce this? Like you're going to stop people from, from giving sweetheart deals to family and friends. So you need a whole nother layer of bureaucracy law enforcement just to make sure all assets are sold at or above market value. So you can't sell a $300,000 car for 10 grand to a family member. You got to make sure that's being enforced. You can't do that. Um, right. So you, know, you need this whole layer of another referee in between every single private transaction. It's just... I don't know. It just really blows my mind that it gains this much popularity, this this whole socialist, democratic socialist. Um, it's like it's purely rooted in emotion, envy and entitlement. Yeah. You know, the other thing is, uh, well, because you just started recently playing chess. I started playing chess. And for anybody wondering, I did not start playing chess because of the Netflix show Queen's Gambit, which I did watch and is really good. But I uh, started playing chess from a, a book I read. But Anyway, one of the things that you recognize really quickly in chess, and this is a lesson that you learn in jujitsu too, is this thing where you can kind of like dangle bait or, I mean, not that the bait angle is really important. My point is if somebody is looking at a situation and they, they see an obvious thing, they don't realize that they're setting a trap for something really bad to happen, even if it's unwitting. So it's like, okay, I'm going to, there's, it's like, oh, your pawn is in this position 
and here's my knight kitty corner. And it's like, you could take my knight, you know, it's right there. And then it's like, that's the obvious thing. That's what any novice chess player would see. But then they take it. And then now I move my bishop to capture your queen, you know? So it's like point A to point B. It's like, anytime you're advocating anything, it's really worth thinking through and thinking, okay, how could this end badly? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, that's a lot of how this uh, philosophy behind the welfare state works. It's like, if you just talk to any random person, this is just kind of the default settings. And you see Mr. Billionaire money bags over here who's buying his fourth yacht. And then you see a homeless guy starving on the street and you say, why not tax that guy and then provide something for the homeless? It seems like obviously that's such a no brainer. It's not that I didn't come to that conclusion to begin with, or that I say, fuck the homeless guy. Cause I, I'm, I don't believe in humanitarianism. That's not it. It's, it's like, okay, but if you're going to go down this path of, you know, taxing and then redistributing, then there really is no end in sight. It's like, once you start down that path, you can't stop. And also then it's like, okay, so what do we do instead? Just fuck the homeless guy. And that sounded really bad. No, I mean, just <laughs> fuck that homeless guy and uh, <laughs> 30 Mike and the boys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, so no, we're not going to say no, we're not going to fuck the homeless guy. Okay. I just said it again, not even trying to, but uh, it's like, it okay, wrong. we're not trying to do them wrong. Yeah. We're not going to do the homeless wrong. Okay. Clear. So it's, it's like, no, I think that we can take care of those people better at the community level. And that takes, it's, it's honestly an act of faith. It's like, okay, well, your plan is that this is them saying it's us. It's like your plan relies on people not being greedy and, you know, providing for themselves before anybody else. And, you know, in the mean, meanwhile, you're going to have all these billionaires that are just hoarding wealth. And it's like, yeah, I could see why that's a concern if I'm, if I'm being like honest, but there are so many historical examples. I mean, just in this country, Americans are never going to let their neighbors starve to death. You know, we're not going to let a quarter of the population be homeless. And if you look at most homeless people today, and I know, I understand there are exceptions to this. But most of the time, it's not because they they never had any opportunity. I mean, that's part of it, a small part of it. But it's really, it's a mental health issue. If you look at the percentage of homeless that have like schizophrenia and all these things. Right. And there is public housing available, but they're, you know, they, they can't even manage to do that. It's like well, they just kind of ramble and wander through the world. You know, there one perfect example is right in Rockford. Um, my wife follows the, the, the owner of this business um, on Facebook. But she's a former homeless woman who her mom was homeless. She got heavily into drugs. Um, she's very open about her past. Her mom was murdered when they were ho- like, just a horror story. Um, and she used to bring her kids with the drug deals when she was homeless. She had a daughter or something, but she got clean and turned her life around 180 degrees and opened up a homeless shelter. And she just works on donations and just hundreds of people come in and she takes care of them, gives them shelter. This is in Rockford. Yeah, that's uh, called wow. Miss Carly's. I, I've thought about having her on the show. I just don't know if I'm ready for that. It's going to be a heavy conversation. She's yeah, been to a lot. Sure. Like her mom was murdered and stuff. It's really deep. But just look at that. That's a free market solution. That's someone that she'd been through it. She understood the lifestyle. She got her life her life right and said, I can help people. I can help the people that are, that are stuck in what I was stuck in. And yeah. she's, it's, it's beautiful. The, the government isn't doing anything but creating more homeless. Whereas people in the free market are doing things like this. And I'm sure this is happening in our places, of the country too. Um, and it's a free market solution and it seems to be working very well. She has a ton of followers, ton of support, gets tons of donations. Um, that's, I love seeing that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I almost steer away from the term free market solution because people hear free market and it kind of implies that there's a profit motive right. when it not like, I just like to call it like non-government solution, right? Or just in, in the market in general, like it's, it's non-government. We are not involving a bureaucracy in this. This is handled uh, voluntarily at the community level. And that's, that's where I have the most faith. It's like, mm-hmm. I have more faith in you know, people like the woman you just described helping the community more than I have faith in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris or Donald Trump. You know, it's just, I like the, the level of bureaucracy needed. It's, it's almost like it crumbles under its own weight. That's how most bureaucracies end. It's like, you can look at, uh, you know, all the giant, even not even private sector and in the, you know, capitalist economy, you have companies that become so large and bloated that they crumble under their own weight. It's like Sears was the shit a hundred years ago. And they were the shit 20 years ago. You know, I remember like, you remember growing up and like going to Sears and seeing all mm-hmm. the lawnmowers and everything. Yep. And now they're, I mean, I don't know if they're officially done, but they're filing for bankruptcy. They're closing 90 plus percent of their locations. Oh, yeah. Toys R Us, Shopco, all these big yeah. kids are just going yeah. out. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of a, it's weird to watch. And then, you know, people can't imagine a world where that's not Amazon and Netflix and Walmart, but that day will come. I mean, who knows if it's going to be, yeah. And who knows if it's going to be in five years or in 50, but people, you don't see what's coming, right? Like nobody, nobody saw Netflix coming that it was going to destroy family video and blockbuster. I mean, family video is only still alive because they're selling CBD out the ass from what I understand. Um, which is very weird. Very that's so, weird. That's so interesting. I thought it was like, I don't know front for a mob. I don't, or something. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. And to anybody listening, if I don't know how widespread family video is, but at least in Illinois, we have, and Wisconsin, we have family Everywhere. videos, which are old school. Uh, you know, what do we call those places? DVD stores? No. Mm-hmm. What do we call them? Yeah. VHS DVD stores. places. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like the, the blockbuster basically. And yeah. they're still in business. I actually had a friend that I went to high school with, uh, you know, good buddy that was the manager of a family video up until like two years ago. <laughs> like, it makes dude. no sense. You go in there and like all the kids' movies are free, and then the rentals are like fifty cents. It's like nineteen eighty six prices. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and everyone has this stuff at home for free, so it's like, how are you paying your overhead? And then they're like, we now sell DVD. It's like, and what else? <laughs> what what, it's, what if it's like you know you find out that like the central bank of like Bangladesh is printing money and and buying U.S. debt just so they could like subsidize and fund U.S. stores like that's how they're staying in business. Yeah, because of that, their population is living in like abject poverty because like they're propping up the DVD industry in the U.S. <laughs> like they just like, they don't want to see family video go down the tubes. That but, yeah, would, uh, apparently. Apparently they're, I mean, when you drive by, they have like just signs upon signs with like the used car floaty man, you know, waving in the wind. It's like CBD sold here. It's like, <laughs> all right, I guess that's what you're doing. You're, you're calling yourself family video, but it's family CBD these days. Yeah. Hey man, you got to pivot with the market, right? Yeah. But um, yeah. So speaking about uh, a chess you brought up. Um, yeah. I'd recently started playing too. Um, and it's funny because your wife has been venting to my wife about how you not venting, but tell her how much you've been playing chess. And it's like your new obsession. Um, yeah. And um, the other day my wife comes in the room and she's like, what are you doing? And I was on the phone with the app you sent me. I was like playing chess. She goes, Oh my gosh, we predicted it. So we predicted it. We're like, Oh, if Nick's obsessed with it, Mike's gonna be doing it soon here too. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Generally, you know, we're uh 
little tribal, you know, on the family level. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's what's so funny. I mean, when I get into something, I get obsessed. I, I don't dabble very well. And uh, reading the book that turned me on to it was uh, The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this guy, Josh Waitzkin, he's only like 43 or 45, something like that. And he doesn't do any podcasts except for Tim Ferriss. And he does Tim Ferriss like every two or three years. And this guy was a child chess prodigy when he was six years old. He was in, I don't know if it was Central Park or another park in New York City. And he's six and he sees these old men playing chess and he's with his mom. And he's like, mommy, can we watch? And she's like, yeah, sure. And he watches these two old men play chess. And then um, he asks the old man, one of them, if he can play. And the mom's like, oh, no, no, he's fine. He doesn't have to play. And he's like, oh, we'll, we'll entertain him. We'll show him how to play. And plays one game against this old man and takes him down to the wire. And by the end, there was a crowd gathering. At one point, the old man like snapped on his mom and said, like, are you hustling me? Like, what is this all about? And she's like, I swear to God, he's never seen it in his life. So then the, you know, the old man beats him. And then he's like, son, what's your name? And he's like, Josh Waitzkin. He goes, Josh, I'm going to read about you in the newspaper. And then I think it was two or three years later, he's the under 18 world champion. And then by the time he's 15, they made a movie about his life called searching for the next Bobby Fisher. And Bobby Fisher was this American chess player that beat all the Soviets back in the seventies. So, uh, you know, he becomes a chess master when he's like a teenager and then he pivots to Tai Chi push hands, push hands, which is a martial art. That's kind of similar to like Greco Roman or judo for people who are familiar and then uh, wins a world championship after two years of training. And then he goes into jujitsu and gets his black belt under Marcelo Garcia in under four years and average is 10 years. Right. So it, so then he writes a book about his learning process and I've listened to it probably three times on audible, or this might've been my fourth time listening to it and the parallels he draws between uh, like chess and jujitsu and Tai Chi. And you know, what he does now is he's like a business consultant. So like he, he talks to like VPs and, you know, presidents and CEOs and all these things about how to optimize their performance and, and kind of reach the next level and learn new skills and all these things. So basically the guy becomes a master at whatever he does very quickly. And, uh, so I, I read the book again and, you know, it inspired me to try chess and it's, I know I've told you this quote before, but it's, uh, Miyamoto Musashi, the, Japanese samurai warrior that said, learn the way broadly and you'll see it in all things. So it's like, you start seeing these parallels when I'm playing chess. It's like, I just feel like this puppy that just keeps on like shitting in the house. And then somebody has to grab my nose and shove it in the shit. And then I learned to not do that again, you know, but then you have to learn it thousands upon thousands of times to become competent. And it reminds me so much of jujitsu that it's incredible. Right. Um, it's a very transferable skill. I mean, just, I hadn't played chess in probably 20 years. I think since I was a little kid, maybe nine or 10 was the last time I played. Um, and I got back into it now as an adult just for the last couple of days. And now it's like, oh, there's a strategy to this. This is not just like moving random pieces around um, just because, you no. know, the motions they make. Um, so it's been, yeah, well, but right away I saw how transferable this is to like, you know, business or to even like debating the socialist. It's like, I can bait you over here and then crush your argument when you go there. Cause that's what I wanted you to go there. You know, it's, it's, it's very transferable to anytime you're in any competition, um, so yeah, it's, it's very addicting and I feel like I'm turning into like an old man now just with my, <laughs> since I have kids and I can't do anything. We, we don't see friends. We never go out cause nobody can accommodate four little kids, but it's like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say like, all I do is like read books now play chess and like study economics and drink tea. I just need like a, a silk robe and some like, you know, 
fireplace and a nice recliner and a nice corn cob pipe. I tried to embrace that image a couple of years ago. I bought a pipe, you know, to smoke pipe tobacco. And I did it for a while. I was reading outside, you know, with my books. I was trying to be like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Looking back on it, it's kind of cringe, but it never (laughs) really took. It never really took. But I mean, now it's kind of more organic. I find myself like sipping on some, you know, tea and and playing chess or doing stuff like that. And it's more fun. I enjoy that way more than, you know, when I was 21 and just going to bars constantly, it's, right, it's more right. rewarding, way more rewarding. And yeah, that's kind of the, that's the trick. Cause I, I'm, I'm kind of just, my waking hours are spoken for. If I'm not, you know, working for you know my job, I am at home doing whatever I have to do for my kids. Like they're, they're so such a dependent age that until right now when we're podcasting, this is the only hour of the day that's mine before bed. So this, yeah. this is kind of my escape, but um, yeah, I just keep my mind busy because when they're playing mindless games and I'm supervising them and, you know, playing with them or if they're watching little nursery rhyme television, you know, it's like you're going to go insane. So I, I keep my mind occupied with playing chess or reading a book and, and you got to keep your mind busy or as you will just like lose it. Like this is, I can't listen to baby shark one more time, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> so you, well, it all out. you know, they say like the idle, idle mind or the idle hands are the devil's playground. And I mean, when I had, uh, when I had COVID and I had to quarantine for 10 days that I, that became more true than ever. And it's like, if you, if you let yourself, if you don't like plan to do something meaningful, then you'll drive yourself crazy. Oh, and that. I ran into that today. I had to, I had to dig something up. Cause it's, uh, I, I know I told you this story, but for the listeners today, right. So the bears played the Packers and I had my whole day planned around the bears playing the Packers at noon. And usually what I like to do on Sundays is I like to go to, uh, you know, jujitsu open mat in town at noon. And it's always a really good time. And then I do something else with my day, but that's, you know, I kind of plan around that. And so today the bears are playing the Packers at noon and it was the bears win and they're in the playoffs. You know, they could also make it to the playoffs if they lose, but then Arizona has to lose. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, get some stuff done in the morning and then I'm going to make some lunch. So I made some pierogies at like 1115. And, you know, I, I scarfed down all these pierogies and it's like 1130 and all of a sudden they, they mentioned something about the bears at three o'clock and I'm like, wait a minute. And I, I checked my phone and sure enough, they moved the bears Packers game to three 30. So now I can make it to jujitsu, but I just ate a whole ass bag of pierogies and I'll throw up on the mat if I try to grapple. So, uh, I, it was thrown out the window, you know? So then I just sat around like, what am I going to do for the next three hours? I had no plan B, <laughs> you know, I had stuff mm-hmm. planned in the afternoon, but now I have to move everything around. Right. Yeah. And that's for, you know, reading or, or challenging your brain with a puzzle or, a, um, you know, even my, uh, my wife, uh, got our kids, the game sequence, uh, for or the kids version for Christmas. And, uh, my seven-year-old daughter's really gotten into it and, you know, it's really fun. It's, it's one of those games I never played as a kid. And this is the kid's version. It's like animal patterns. But, um, you know, just even that, like, it was, it's competitive. It's pattern recognition. And so, like, we, we burned, like, two hours today just doing that, you know, while the while the while our little baby twins were napping because I can't do anything else. So, it's like, you know, you might as well have, you know, spend quality time with your older kids. But it's kind of fun just keeping your mind busy and you're still challenging yourself. And it's, it's one of those games where it works even playing with a kid because it's all about strategy mixed with luck of the draw. So it's kind of, you know, she would beat me 25% of the time, but I'd beat her 75 only because I have a little better strategy because I'm an adult. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's like a way simpler version of chess though. 
Yeah, so, and well, have have you noticed this too? You're talking about like time flying by. Have you noticed how time like just accelerates when you're playing chess? It, mm-hmm. It's like a half hour goes by like that. I'm like, no, no, that wasn't a half hour, but it was right. it was a half hour. And I don't know what it is, but it's like when you're when your mind is locked in, you know, it just things fly by or when you're doing something like, I mean, it's cliche and everybody's heard it a million times, but time flies when you're having fun, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's um, when you're in a good book too. Like I, I was, uh, I don't know if, if you guys have been listening, whoever's been listening to the show since the start, I've, you know, I endlessly quote Naval Ravikant. He's just one of the most uh, brilliant minds I think of our time right now, him and him and Jordan Peterson. I think if, you know, if any, if all, every kid just listened to like the words of those two guys, you know, you're going to be a, like a very incredible adult. Um, but I've been reading his, not his book, but an author put a, an all my neck together of all of his quotes and uh, podcast interviews and tweets. And yeah, I, I read that for probably about an hour and a half today, just got through a bunch of pages and, and you know, going back and reading the pages over is one of those books where you don't, you're not trying to speed through it. You're trying to consume it. Um, Cause every, every single sentence just hits where it's like, wow, I'll never see, like, I see this in a completely different way now. I mean, it could, it's like very life-changing. Like every time I read it, I get something else out of it. Um, but yeah, it's one of the same things where the time just like, boom, it's like, wow, that was been an hour. Like, man, that was like really fun. Like how, how did I go 20 pages already? Like, it's just really, um, way more like useful investment of your time than like you said, being in your early twenties and just hanging out with the boys, well, you know, which is fun. It's a fun period of your life for, for a short time, but don't, don't make it a lifestyle or a lifelong habit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and that's, it's one of those things like where people become more conservative in their lifestyles as they get older. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, uh, you look back at 1960s culture and what did they say? Don't trust anybody over 30. Was that their cliche? Something like that. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if somebody's free spirited and young and wild, then, you know, they can be trusted, but then, you know, they see people that have settled down as like, Oh, you sold out into the system, man. And it's like, <laughs> no, people just, they no. find things that are more meaningful and they, they gravitate towards them. You yeah, know, if, it's if like, anything, our society has a guilty of selling kids on instant gratification. Like everything, when you're a kid, it's like the pop music, everything's just sex party. You know, it's like the TV, everything's just like, just kind of smutty instant gratification. It's not, we don't have, like Dick Van Dyke and leave it to beaver on TV anymore. It's just like, everything is like trying to piss off the last generation of parents. And that's how, that's how it always is. You know, it just progressively gets lefter and lefter and more radical um, to the point where it's like, like, why, why is it, why do you want this to be appealing to kids? You know, like what's this just all these shows with drugs and, and, you know, just uh, promiscuity and all this stuff. It's like, it's, it's not, it's not a long-term way of life. No, it's really not. And that's where you start getting into the questions of like, you know, conspiracy. Like, is this, is this being, uh, is this some kind of top down thing where they're trying to, you know, spoil the population with bread and circuses, or is this just kind of an organic thing where as we become more comfortable as a society, we have more leisure and, you know, with more leisure creates more idle hands. And then, you know, it's the devil's playground. I don't know if that's, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I don't know like what shadowy group has the incentive to push those kind of things. I mean, I can't imagine that it could be that coordinated. I think it's just, uh, I think it's the second thing where, you know, people have too much free time and leisure right. and they, they toil, which <clears throat> is yeah, not I, a good thing. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, 
the obvious one is sex sells and the people want to make money. So it's like, why would you not use the, the oldest tool in the book to sell whatever you're trying to push, whether it's a TV show or a product. Um, so then, then it just gets edgier and edgier. It's one of those things where the bar keeps getting lower. It's like, oh, well, if you can show a chick in a bikini, why not show her in a thong on commercial? Like it just keeps getting edgier and edgier where it's like, like okay, why, why are we doing this? But there's no one there to stop it. It's one of those things that keeps running away and snowballing. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's a bad thing. Like, I don't think that, I don't think we need to go back to like, uh, you know, 18th century, like Victorian or what is it? Quaker things where it's like they have hid the, the legs of tables. Like but if you show <laughs> the legs of tables, then people are going to want to see the legs of girls. You right, know? Right. So it's, you don't want to have this like authoritarian culture. Oh, no, no you know? zero, so it's like no censorship. It, yeah, exactly. So it's like, and not even at the state level, but I mean like at the personal level, it's like, I, I mean, I don't have any kids, but it's like, I, I've obviously I'm not going to want to expose my kids to like smut and things. That's just like nonsense, but you're also not going to like over shelter them and right, right. to where the, the first time they see it, it's like, you've kept it away from them for so long that by the first time they see it and like are curious about it, they're, they're going to be like, well, what do I, what do I do? And, and is this just a taboo because my parents say it's a taboo mm-hmm. and that's going to make kids rebel and go towards it. Or do you say like, Hey, here's like, you know, you take alcohol or something and it's like, you could tell a 16 year old or somebody like 15, that's like just starting to kind of party with their friends on the weekends, you know, like we used to do, um, stealing liquor from your friend's parents cabinet and, you know, bringing it downstairs and doing stupid stuff like that. And it's like, you could tell them like, Hey, you know, if, if yeah, you have a couple drinks here and there, it's, it's not going to hurt you. It's fine. You know, you can have fun and it's, it's great for having experience with experiences with your friends, uh, you know, when you're younger and it's, it's not a bad thing by itself, but you never drive when you're drinking and also realize that this is highly addictive. And as you get older in the next 10 years of your life, you're going to discover that a ton of your friends, uh, are going to have like serious issues with this and you could be one of them, you know, and it's, it's like, you just don't lie to kids about the, the kind of dangers of, of, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like this kind of like libertine lifestyle, you don't lie to them about the dangers of it, but you also don't shelter them. It's like, Hey, I'm just going to be upfront and a hundred percent honest and tell you this as I see it. And right. maybe that's the best path. I have no idea. No, I, yeah, this is something I've grappled with quite a bit, but you know, my, my kids are still quite a, quite a ways away from me having to deal with these problems. But, um, I thought about it quite a, quite a bit. Um, but yeah, you're right. You have to give them some slack. You can't be an authoritative parent because you're just going to, I mean, it's kind of like a, a country. If you just, if you shelter all their freedoms away, so they can't do anything. They're going to want to spring free and rebel. Um, and you look at like even the Amish where they have like, what's that, like that rum sprata or whatever, where they let the teens like go to rum side. Rum spring. I can't, I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, like how many, I saw a documentary on that where those kids are like free to go see like, you know, the modern way of life and see if they want to, you know, come back on their own terms to to the religion. I, mean, I think that's how it works. But um, yeah, a lot of them get hooked on meth and like just coke and drug overdoses and alcohol like poisoning and stuff. Like it's horrible because like once again, it's been like this is taboo. You can't have any sort of stimulants. You can't have coffee, nicotine. So it's like, oh, you're free to do what you want. It's like, well, everyone's doing it. Let me try it. Well, this makes me feel great. And like you don't realize that this substance is like a loan shark that's going to give you instant gratification and tomorrow is going to ball back your knees and take 10 times more than it gave you last night um and it, you know it's sometimes it's too late for people to realize that though they get stuck in that positive feedback loop where they need it and it, it can just devastate people's lives so fast 
Yeah, no, it's sad. And I mean, it's, it's something that I think everybody sees it like when you're younger and you're, I think teen years are really important and you see it when you're a teenager and, but you don't really understand it. It's like, well, I'm never going to be that guy. You know, like what, mm-hmm. what's the point of worrying about that? Like, I'm not going to become like a homeless, like alcoholic, like drug addict. And then, I mean, you don't realize that it's all those decisions that you make daily, you know, when you can get away with them when you're in your early twenties and that kind of thing. And then it's like, okay, do that every day for 10 years. What's your life going to look like? You know, right. and you have one or two bad life events that happen. And all of a sudden you start leaning on that lifestyle as an escape. And then, you know, maybe you are homeless or you're a full blown drug addict or something and you realize how it happens and it's sad. And I, I mean, I don't know what to do about it, but I right. think, uh, you know, like Jordan Peterson has talked so much about, I think like meaning is really missing from, you know, individuals in our society. Yeah, no, it really is. And man, Jordan Peterson is just one of those guys that like, I'll go like a couple months out listening to him and then I'll just like go back on a binge and just be like, man, why do I not listen to this every day? Like, it's just so insightful and powerful. Like, um, I know I'm not one of those guys that's just like constant, constantly needs like self-help stuff. I'm trying to stay motivated, but, um, you know, and waves is kind of fun, but every time I listen to that, it's, it's just like Naval. Like I mentioned, those two guys are probably my two most, two people I follow the most that I don't know, you know, I mean, uh, outside of like family and parents and stuff like those, those two guys are the two, um, people I literally follow. Not like, not like, you know, Twitter follower, but like I've li- tried to consume as much content there as I possibly can. Cause I really, uh, think they have a lot to offer to society. Yeah. And they also, I, I mean, maybe not so much Naval, but like I know Jordan Peterson for sure. They attract a lot of, uh, as the kids say, haters or ankle biters that people like, you know, I've seen, I'm, I'm in a couple of these, uh, it's going to sound super dorky, but a couple of meme groups. One of them is Lord of the Rings. Uh, shit meme posting. Yeah. <laughs> One of them is Lord of the Rings shit posting. And uh, it's, it's hilarious. Like they just use Lord of the Rings meme templates and then go wild with it. But uh, somebody had like a Jordan Peterson meme and there were a bunch of people that, you know, liked it like pro Jordan Peterson. And then the comments were just riddled with people like saying like, Oh, he's followed by incels and, and all this stuff, like just going after him. And it's like, what, it, like, and you know, calling him like a fascist and stuff. And it's like, what, what is Jordan Peterson ever said that is even a little bit fascisty or is that, that a word that's even, or maybe it's just fascist. That's even a little fascist. And it's, it's like, uh, you know, people hear a message that says that they are responsible for their circumstances and it's all on you at the end of the day. And it's like, well, my whole worldview says the opposite of that, that like, you know, the whole world's ripping me off and I'm not responsible. So what, how else do you react to that other than try to tear it down and delegitimize it? You know? Yeah. It's the only way or you got to rip down and delegitimize your entire worldview if you don't do that. So that's the only option. Right. Um, but yeah, no, that's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you look at what they're saying objectively, it's like, oh yeah, how can I argue with this? I mean, you can get into the, you know, the, the weeds about the, his gender stuff or whatever he got his fame about the, you know, the gender pronouns being a law. Um, you know, people will get very, uh, emotional about that, but, um, even though he's right, <laughs> but, uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Those guys are just, they, they have very good, especially Peterson. He's, got so much to offer to people who don't have a father figure in their life. I know he's helped a lot of people like that. A lot of people had depression. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it is very interesting how those people can be demonized by society, but that's what the left does. I mean, 
everything. They just tear down everything is that's not woke. Yeah, and I mean, uh, it's one of the main things Jordan Peterson talks about is what is what does he say exactly? It's like you know, make sure that your your own house is in order before you go about changing the world or trying to fix the world. Mm-hmm. And it's like. And then, I mean, I don't know where this even comes from, but it's a cliche everybody's heard a thousand times, but it's like, be the change you want to see in the world. And it's, it's like, what if everybody in the world, and of course this isn't going to happen, but what if like half the people in the world really tried to take responsibility and just make their surroundings better and patch up like their relationships and, and, you know, save money and do all these things. The world would be drastically better a year from now than it is right now. I mean, you'd see less homeless, you'd see, you know, more people happy doing things they love to do. And, uh, and you know, we won't see that. I mean, hopefully the, the direction that we trend is that you see more and more people doing that in a society. I think that's really what creates a happy and prosperous society. And when you wonder like, okay, well, everybody kind of intuitively knows that let's say somebody who's like apolitical or somebody that agrees with us. If you ask them like, Hey, isn't this good for a person to do? I mean, I would say like 95% of people are going to agree with you. And it's like, okay, well, why doesn't that message prevail? Why isn't that more common? And to me, it comes back to that conspiracy slash ideology question. Like, I think there's a good chance that there really is some sort of conspiracy. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what group it is or, or what the, uh, the motive is, but it seems like kind of degeneracy and, and, you know, dependence is yeah. being pushed instead well, here's of thing. Is take get rid of the word conspiracy theory and just say would there be any sort of powerful group of people that has incentive to keep the masses complacent and just self-indulgent i mean yeah and that's where you have to give uh like some credence to the left like there, there is an incentive like i don't think netflix thinks that's the worst thing in the world like right yeah sure why not <laughs> you know and right. to a, yeah, like, big pharma it, thinks it's a problem to keep people jacked up on painkillers all day yeah yeah and i feel like the kind of knee-jerk reaction from a lot of libertarians is to defend the private institution uh you know so long as the government's in the conversation Mm -hmm. and i think that's a mistake i think that you know you have to be weary of power in general and there's no denying that a company like google or netflix or youtube wields incredible power so i it's not that it's not that I want the government to come in and, and bust them up or anything or raise their taxes. It's just like, I, I want more people in the population to be weary and skeptical of, you know, unsought influence over their lives and their behavior. Right. And, you know, I try not to ever point to like, or, you know, romanticize any era or any year in particular that was like a utopia in our inner past. Um, but I've always had like a, a real, attraction towards the year 1959 and I, I don't know why it's just such an interesting time to me um, um because of the marginal tax rate <laughs> probably uh no quite the opposite um because it's, it's just a, a very interesting time where uh everything changed so fast you had the post-world war ii generation come back and you know it's really kicked off the whole baby boom and <clears throat> it's like everything just kind of the the the, the hockey stick increase of like innovation of um like manufacturing items you know like right now we're in the tech man or tech boom but like just like the cars you've got a 1950 to a 1959 it's like a different planet it's not the same thing you know like the, the all the tail fins um music you go from like hardly any recorded music in the 40s very very little to rock and roll like by 54 55 
and then that just changed so fast from like Elvis and Chuck Berry to, um, you know, Buddy Holly and who died in 59 with Richie Valens and, and Big Bopper. So it's like that year, like you had American music on top of the world. Three of your biggest stars go out in a plane crash. The tail fins kind of end on the car or in like the 60 Cadillac. Um, but by 1960, most tail fins were gone. The rock and roll was gone. The British took over the music in the 60s. But so also you didn't have the hippie movement yet. Like that all came out. And I just feel like we had like without censorship, the most like Christian valued equal with high standard of living at the same time in our country where it's like the TV was very conservative type values. Um, the rock and roll that was edgy was like, it's just like PG now. Um, it's just a very interesting time. It's like, you know, I'd love to go back there and live there for a day and just see what the culture is yeah. actually like. And if it's, and, if it's the way I view it. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, it's not perfect. You know, it's like the, the 1950s were, you know, if, uh, when it comes to like traditional values, they were really good. The music was great. The cars, like there was more culture, like, you know what I mean? I, I think mm-hmm. it's in Sweden today. I know you're aware of this, but in Sweden today and a lot of Scandinavian countries, they're obsessed with like, 50s american americana you know that might have been redundant but but it's like you know elvis and and, you know 57 yeah and coca-cola and and you know 57 chevys and stuff it's like they they go crazy for that shit and it's like yeah that was the the pinnacle of kind of american culture i mean and now it had its drawbacks you know it wasn't so great if you were you know black when it comes to like civil rights that's the first thing people point out is like well the jim crow laws and it's like well yeah of course and i'm not saying it's a perfect world and also government was enforcing that so yeah and it's I'm almost in. like you wish you could it's almost like you wish you could uh like cherry pick certain things from certain eras you know it's right. like what what is the best of america like let's take our macroeconomic structure from the 19th century you know no central bank no income tax like all this stuff and then we'll take kind of our our you know pride and our our values from the 1950s and then you know the the more equal application of the law from you know post 1960s and all these things and let's let's try to get to that place you know like what made what what is the best feature of each generation and let's take the baby out and then remove the bathwater. Like that's the path forward. But it, the problem, the paradox is that no groups, whether it's Republicans or Democrats or libertarians or socialists can agree on what the positives and what the negatives were, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the, the thing is like um, for uh, like the socialists and everything, it's like, would you, would you rather be like making 30 grand a year in 2020 America? Or would you rather be, Henry Ford in, in 1917, like, cause I would clearly rather live with modern technology um, and a smaller wage right now than be the wealthiest guy in the world um, with, you know, in the 19 teens during world war one with the, the primitive medical technology and um, <laughs> technological features and everything. I'd much rather be a poor middle-class guy now than be the richest guy of that era. Yeah. And I mean, um, that that's a, Something where, you know, the a common trope on the left is that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, which is utter nonsense. It's like if, you know, 100 years ago, the average American didn't have, uh, you know, a furnace in there. I mean, they had like wood burning furnaces and stuff, but they didn't have like central heat and air and they didn't have refrigerators. You know, it's like you had a, a milkman that came and brought you cold milk and, you know, you had to drink it before it didn't spoil, I think. 
I'm just that's that's what makes sense. I don't nobody ever told me that. I didn't read it anywhere. But they had like an icebox in the in the third. Yeah, they had an icebox. I remember watching like the honeymooners. Like Alice, we got any milk in the icebox, Alice? And then now you, I I drank it and to the moon. He threatened to you know uppercut yeah, his yeah. wife. A lot of domestic abuse in the fifties. That's the best part of the fifties. That's really it's it's Jackie Gleason threatening to knock his wife out. Well, I mean, what was funnier than that? I don't know if they thought it was funny back then. I mean, probably, or I don't know what we we should ask them. Like, okay, what what about that? Did you think was funny? Let's like really grill. I'm like the idea that he's like, of course he wouldn't hit his wife. You know, it's like no, no, it's funny that he threatened to do it. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think this this like. This guy just like always so unstable. He's always on the edge of just domestic abuse because he had a bad day at work. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Very interesting. And he was a fat but, fuck in the nineteen uh what was that, forties or fifties, which was rare. You know? Yeah. You saw a fat guy back then, if you saw a fat man, that was that was something. You know, that was like seeing right. like a fox, you know, when you're driving, like, oh my God, like a fat right. guy. Mm-hmm. And uh and now it's you know, it's it's nothing. It's they're more like squirrels seeing one. It's like they're everywhere. <laughs> but um yeah but yeah to your point then even like the music as it as it evolved um because like before like I, I had people i'd follow like uh you know naval and jordan peterson i was always a music guy and i always i loved lyrics you know bob dylan stuff just uh of any era I like modern stuff uh all throughout history just i like people that had a way of putting a very complicated and deep philosophy into a few short verses like i think that's an amazing skill um so I've one of my, my to this day probably my favorite band is still Leonard Skinner. Um and it's one of those bands too, like kind of like reading Naval or, or Peterson. I'll go months, a year without checking anything in. And then I go back and I'm like, man, I forgot how good this is. Like this is so well done, you know? And it's like um Ronnie Van Zant, the lead singer, was another guy who was just so well beyond his years. And now the fact that I'm 30 is really a whole different perspective because Ronnie Van Zant died like three days or three months before his 30th birthday. He was 29 years old. I just look back on the wisdom and like I had from his life and it's like, geez, like how did you how did you peak that fast, you know? And he always said he would never live to see 30, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just fascinating. Yeah, and you know, it makes you wonder because uh they always talk about how Nikola Tesla, his theory on ideas was that human beings didn't originate ideas, like they didn't create them of their own like independence and sovereignty. He thought that that the human mind was like an antenna in, in the universe. And we all had these antennas and some people's antennas were better at picking up more frequencies, but he believed that ideas literally came to people and it was us. It was up to us like humans to kind of catch these ideas and decipher them and then manifest them, Mm -hmm. you know? And you wonder when it comes to music, it's like, I don't know how else, to explain it it's like i'm i'm so uh musically illiterate that i can't even like if you told me like try to come up with like an original beat or riff or something i would sit there for hours going and then i'm like oh no that's smoke on the water i just did you know i have no (laughs) idea like my brain doesn't work that way but and i'm assuming for you know whether it's riffs or lyrics that maybe that's the same way some people are more tapped into to creativity and originality in a way that I can't conceive of, you know? And Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's just a completely kind of tangential thought, but it it makes you wonder when you brought that up. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, one of the reasons I cite Skinner is, is not only the, the lyrics, like when you listen to songs like every mother's son, um, or even like that smell, it's just, they're such good lyrics that it's like, you know, these are guys who are drug addicts and you just hear the passion in their voice saying like, stay away from drugs. Don't do what we did. This is terrible. Like, Oh, you're yeah. a fool, you, you know, I've been there before. 
Like they're using their platform to say, I fucked up. Don't do this. Do not try like heroin or Coke. Um, yeah. And, and so, that talent, the, I mean, that talent's incredible. And, yeah. and uh, it's like, if you talked to Ronnie Van Zant or you watch his like interviews, he doesn't come off as like the most brilliant intellectual in the world, but he had this brilliance like in his domain that it, it's like, I, how else do you explain that? I, I don't like, I, like I said, my brain doesn't even remotely work like that. So it's, it's just bizarre to me. Yeah. And like, you know, I've, I think my, the first rock band I really fell in love with was Led Zeppelin. Um, but then you know, I got older and just kind of realized it's like, I love the beats and stuff, but um, the, you know, but our time Zeppelin performed live, the Van Ronnie or not Ryan Van Zandt, Robert Plant had like this um, center of attention disorder where like during a page guitar solo, he would just have to go, Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Like he just had to have the attention on him even during pages solo. And it was just so cringe and annoying. It's like, there are very few Zeppelin live songs I can tolerate. Cause it's just like, it's, as I say, they're the Joe Biden of politics. Cause they just gaff live. Um, and there are lots of rumors about little girls. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, just rumors, but, um, the van, you know, Skinner, they always sounded so tight. Like every single time they were alive, it was just like super tight music. And I've watched almost every documentary there is on them and they were interviewing the first drummer and they had this place where uh, they call it the hell house. Cause they were in Gainesville, Florida with no air conditioning and they would practice seven days a week there. Um, sometimes the time they were teenagers. And he said they did it every day for seven years before you heard a song on the radio. And it's like, Oh, that's why you were, you sound like master musicians by the time you got on. Like you think about chess or jujitsu, imagine that kind of time commitment with the same group of guys every time how like tight and talented you would be. Yeah. It's almost like they, they formed as like this kind of symbiotic uh, organism. Like they, mm-hmm. it was uh yeah, they, they didn't come together. Like they grew up together, you know? And, and I mean, what you're talking about, like Skinner in particular, that comes through, you know, you listen to like how everything flows where, I mean, yeah, you, you could, like you talked about Zeppelin and how sloppy they were live because Robert Plant had uh you know, had, had an obsession with being the center of attention. And also they're, you know, probably stoned out of their mind on heroin and hammered and on Coke too. So that's probably why it didn't sound super good, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that is a good point. I mean, I didn't know they practiced seven days a week for seven years together yeah. as, you know, growing up that, that explains a lot with no air conditioning in Florida. It just shows the level of commitment. And um, yeah, there was even like the part where they're interviewing um, Ed King, who recently passed away, one of the guitarists. And he said, he was uh, came up with the riff for Sweet Home Alabama, and Ronnie Van Zandt said he was keep playing that. And he said for like five or six hours, he's sitting in there. Van Zandt leaves, walks outside to the river, and starts fishing. And but he can hear the the guitar amp in the background. Bam, 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 da, 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 doing the, he's doing the whole song and come up with the riff. And he comes back, and they said he never wrote a lyric down ever. He said in his head, he comes in and just lays out the lyrics um, on the first take that stuck with the production song. So they didn't change a word. He said wow. five hours and wrote the song in his head, didn't write it down. And it's like, yeah, it's like, this was just, I don't know, those people fascinate me because they're, they're, they're on a whole different level that, you know, I don't have, but um, have a like just very incredible insight on life, especially for their age. Yeah. And especially those skills that you can't teach to somebody, you can't teach somebody to be a songwriter. It's like, and, and it's unpredictable, you know, who's going to be it. I don't know if you can like test for some personality trait that says, yeah, this person's going to be uh, like, if you gave Bob Dylan an IQ test, is he a genius? Like I probably not. I mean, he's probably like a slightly above average, you know, intelligence guy, but 
mm-hmm. holy shit, can that guy write some powerful stuff and make right. it and make it rhyme, <laughs> you know? And uh, and yeah, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, and and those stories are somewhat common, right? I mean, I don't know how common it is that somebody writes it in one take after hearing a riff, but I mean, it's it's a it seems like a good uh, exhibit to show that that kind of creativity is uh, is is out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dylan's another one too, where it's I've I've read a couple biographies of his, but um, he's what another guy who's just constantly searching for like like kind of soul searching. Like in the eighties, he got he went through a huge uh, born again Christian phase. So in the sixties, he's like this rebellious, anti-war, anti-establishment guy. Um, would be viewed radically left wing back then. Um, a lot of his views are very libertarian now. Looking back at it, he's very just anti-state and pro-individual. I, you know, despite the things he's still left wing on, but a lot of stuff he comes out in the songs. It's it's. I don't have any really 60s Dylan songs that really piss me off and think it's like super crazy left, you know? Yeah. Um, but at the time it was, that was radically left. Um, but then in the eighties, like he gets into this like very conservative Christian lifestyle. Um, and he was like a Jew, you know, he converted to, to Christianity. Uh, really? So I didn't know that about him. Yeah. He put out like two or three albums in the eighties that were all gospel music and like Christian hymns and stuff. Huh. So very interesting. Yeah, he, mar- he like got married to like this black Christian woman. And uh, they had a kid with her or something. Like it was just a like once again, you tell the guy it was just. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the getting that famous when you're 20 years old. <laughs> like you know, yeah. you're, you're, you spend the rest of your life trying to find yourself and be like, okay, there's got to be more than this. Like I'm tired of the fame, you know. Yeah, and you know, speaking of uh, of Bob Dylan, um, and I know you you and I have talked about this in the past before, but there's something scary to me where, in a lot of ways, we're becoming more advanced as people like I think the uh, the palette for entertainment has become more refined like with movies and TV shows if mm-hmm. you uh, it, you know it's funny as uh, Curtis Yarvin talked about this he, he's like if you took somebody from the 1950s or 60s and you showed them the movie inception they would walk out of there they'd be like what the what the fuck is in my popcorn did somebody like dose this with LSD like what they oh, it, like yeah. didn't, they wouldn't enjoy it because they wouldn't even know how to conceive of it. You know, it's like, they would just be, they would be confused and, and just weirded out. And they would just like, try to forget that, you know? And in a lot of ways it's like, okay, so our, our attention spans have become more refined for that kind of stuff. But at the same time, when it comes to music, we've lost all of it. Like we've lost all of that taste where if you Mm. like, all you talk about like Bob Dylan, um, you know, he's one of the biggest artists in the world at the time. And if you try to show somebody today, Bob Dylan, like take your average teenager, they're going to be, you're going to lose them. Like they're, you're going to be like, Hey buddy over here, you know, like trying to show you this thing and they're just going to reject it and not know what to do with it. And it's, it's bizarre to me because you know, how could we look at that? It's obviously developed for longer attention span listening and why did that go out of style you know and i don't know if that was just the uh you know the 1980s happened and then things kind of slowly morphed that way but even in the 90s you have like a lot of good 90s music that that, that's you know sort of longer attention span where hey bear with the first couple minutes here because the message is really good and then it all works together when you listen to it through and, mm-hmm. you know, people used to write albums for like in order you wanted the, the idea was to listen to the album all the way through. And that's kind of gone out and everything is like you're saying before, more instant gratification. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, it, it makes me wonder what, like what caused that? Well, if you want to go get a little more conspiratorial, this has been, I can't find it 
like I looked it up years ago, so I'm not crazy. I, I found it. It was called like the Fair Waves Act. I could be wrong. Something along those lines. But in 1997, I think it was, there was some kind of government mandate or regulation where all FM airwaves, like basically had to play the same songs. Like why, why is it that a 14 year old girl in Maine and a 14 year old girl in Hawaii listen to the exact same 40 songs? Is that a little interesting? They're completely radically different cultures. Um, but yeah, so when's the last time there was a one hit wonder on pop radio? You know, like everyone's a megastar now. Like they're, they're all like through gatekeepers. They come in there and they have like a career of just like, oh, you get like three pop songs every year. But uh, Tom Petty wrote a song about it in the year 2000 called The Last DJ about this government regulation saying there goes the last DJ. There goes your freedom of choice. There goes the last human voice. Um, and that song got banned from the FM radio. And I can't even like I Google it. I can't even find any record of the of the mandate. Like, you know, I read about it years ago. It's very weird. But I don't yeah, know, man. That just could just be it could just be money. They said like four record labels write every single song on both country nowadays and pop, which clearly is the same music. It's just with a twang. It's just pop music with a twang. Um, but yeah, there's no substance. There's no song where it's like, wow, that one really made me think. It's always just like very low IQ pandering, just you know, tonight, night, night, dance, 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 you know, in pop music, then the country you have like this like Four-wheel drive, small-town dirt road, Daisy Duke bridges on a Friday night, like oh, every please. single song with a hip-hop beat now in the background. Um, when the, it, Meanwhile, there's all this uh, beautiful, amazing underground talent in all these industries that can't get on FM radio. When you find guys like Sturgill Simpson and stuff, where it's like, wait, how is this not on the radio, but Luke Bryan is? Um, it's just, they're just clearly gatekeepers. Like, they don't want, they, they have control of what you want to hear, you know, and that's top 40. Yeah, really. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to close on anything. No, that's about it. We're about crossing an hour, but um, yeah, man, just trying to understand socialists and sell people on Leonard Skinner. It's my goal. I'd, I'd say if you accomplish that, that's, that's a good <laughs> job. Well done. Awesome, Nick. Well, uh, yeah, good talking to you and maybe I'll play you in chess here soon. Try to All right. You. Let's all off right now and do it. Right, bye. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.